0: Hello there, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith and spirituality beyond the walls and fences and confines of institutional religion. This is episode number 31 of the podcast. It's our sixth episode of season number two. And my guest for this episode is Reverend Dr. John Smith. I met Pastor John, as he's affectionately known, on a trip to Russia in 2013 with the service organization Orphan's Tree, who you will hear a little bit more about during the interview. John has recently released a book called Rublev's Trinity, where he discusses Trinitarian theology through the lens of one of the most famous icons in the Russian Orthodox tradition. John and I had a really interesting conversation about his book about the work of Orphan's Tree, and about how ancient practices like iconography are helping many people who are experiencing spiritual deconstruction gain a new perspective on faith and spiritual practices. Also, just before we start, let me give you a bit of a disclaimer. You will probably notice um, some background noises, um, a little more than what we usually have in this episode. While my goal is always to put out the highest quality audio possible, All of the interviews for the podcast are done by Zoom, where our guests are often in living rooms and dens and offices and kitchens or wherever they're most comfortable, uh, which means we sometimes pick up some background sounds that we don't always notice much during the interview itself, but sometimes come through in the recording in places where they just can't easily be edited out. So I hope that that those things, if you come across those in this episode, won't be too distracting for you as a listener, but sometimes that is just the reality of our format. So with all that being said, I think you're really going to enjoy... Um, Pastor John's keen observations and his deep love for people, especially for people in the margins as we have this conversation together. So please give a warm, accidental tomatoes welcome to Reverend John Smith.
1: Rublev paints the Trinity as three young persons. And I don't even say young men because they're really not obviously male figures. Um, he's trying to say, you know, we're in created the image of God, male and female. He created us. Or God created us in the image of God. So the image of God is male and female. And so uh, there's a, an androgynous
0: uh, uh,
1: a look to, to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
0: Okay, friends. So for, uh, for this episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast, I am thrilled to introduce you to my friend, the Reverend Dr. John Smith. Um, and Pastor John, as we affectionately know him, has written a new book, um, called Rublev's Trinity, an ancient painting, an awesome God and you. John, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast here today. Thanks for, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Joe. You you and I kind of met through a mutual friend,
1: Book uh, Patterson. Yeah. Had one brief meeting in Russia. I think that was, right, 2013?
0: Yeah, yeah, thereabouts, yeah.
1: So you're just as handsome as you were then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, it's it's such a thrill to have you Um have you here to, to talk about your book and um and we'll get into some of the the story of how we met in Russia too a little bit and the organization Orphans Tree, um that that led to us you know uh, meeting there and then and to being able to have this conversation here. Um, but why don't you um just give the folks listening a little bit of an introduction into who you are, what it is that you do, um and how you came to write this uh, this really incredible book. Well, thank you. Yes, uh, well
1: I'm a I guess you could say I'm a retired United Methodist pastor. I like. To, Is there really such a thing? Yeah, <laughs> I, I like to think of myself more as a refocused United Methodist pastor. Nice. Uh, I uh, I actually began pastoring uh, in the Evangelical United Brethren Church. Uh, your folks know any church history that denomination merged with the Methodist in 1968. So I'll let you know something about my age. That I'm pre 68. <laughs> I started in 67, uh, 19 years of age. One of those things where uh, my father passed away early, uh, age 43, and I thought I was going to be, I was in college, a freshman at Penn State, and uh, I thought I'd go through college before I worried about a full-time job, but kind of financial responsibility for my family fell on me. Mm. And I even considered uh, signing up for the uh, military that was in the midst of the Vietnam War. I thought about maybe being a, uh, a medic uh, and, and actually went through uh, uh, some of the basics to get me ready for that. And then uh, uh, my pastor said to me, John, you got a call to be a pastor. Why wait? And began pastoring some little rural churches outside of Indiana, Pennsylvania, and uh Went to Indiana University of Pennsylvania. So I've uh, been pastoring since then, uh, Western Pennsylvania Conference, um, and uh, a total of 45 years. And so at the end of 45 years, I thought, you know, I think I've done this. <laughs> I'm ready to do some <laughs> other things. And, uh, uh, in, and retired uh, in 2012, moved out here to central Pennsylvania, where I have three of my six grandchildren. When you retire, grandchildren are like a magnet, you know, yes, kind of pull yeah. you to where they are, and uh, uh, but I'm just thankful to the Lord to be here because we've gotten involved in a very uh, creative, outreaching, mission-oriented uh, church, and uh, it's allowed me to be active in a lot of things. Now, in the midst of that pastoring, um, we had a I had an associate uh, pastor, um, actually my minister of visitation, Albert Steiner, who worked for me till he was 94 years old. Wow. On these snowy western Pennsylvania winter days, I'd be sending a 94-year-old out to visit shut-ins that were 20 years younger than him. (laughs) 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 And God bless him. He worked up until December the 31st of 2004, died 13 days later. It's almost like he hung up his spurs, went to bed. And slept away. I mean, it couldn't be any more perfect. Wow! And uh, his son, named George Steiner, worked for International Bible Society. So I met George through the parents. He and I became friends. Well, George, when the when the uh, Soviet Union fell, uh, ninety one, uh, George was given the assignment of putting a picture Bible, a Russian language picture Bible, in the hands of every orphan in Russia, which at that time was somewhere in the area of 450,000 orphans. Wow. And so he actually spent about two years uh, overseeing that. Got a heart for orphans. Realized that, mm. you know, as, as we know about ministry, part it is important that this is giving them the word of God. If they're hungry or cold or, or sick, uh, there's other needs there that need to be met along with it. Now, George right, said, right. we got to do more than give Bibles for these folks. Uh, we need to to give them hope and and uh, some life support. And uh, God bless International Bible Society. They said to George, well, our call, and God bless them, they know their call, our call is to get the word of God out. But what we'll do is we'll pay you for the next year. You see if you can develop that ministry. And then if you feel that it's coming together, you go ahead and go off in that ministry. So that's what happened. And during that time, George asked me to go to Russia with him to do a kind of a, uh, an assessment. At that point, we weren't sure that orphan orphanages would let us in. Mm-hmm. And uh, would they let us do the things that we felt that we could do for them? Now, I got to admit to you, Joe, that I'm a child of the Cold War. Uh, list the nations of the world and put them in priority order of where I wanted to go. I'm not saying Russia would have been last, (laughs) (laughs) but not first, but it wouldn't have been first. Let's say it would have been much closer to the end of the list, you know, Mm. next to last movie. But you know, you'll do things for a friend. You might not do otherwise. Mm. And I told George, I'd do one trip with him. So in 1995, I took a trip with George and, and some, Medical people, pastors, psychologists, and contractors. We visited for three weeks orphanages around Russia, just asking, "What do you need? Will you let us come in and share?" And uh, the door opened. And during that time, my heart was knit to Russia and Russians. And so my one trip now is probably 35 trips that I've wow. that I've made. There. In fact, <clears throat> my son and I and our families were walking in the woods yesterday. It was a beautiful day here and uh um he we were talking about how much time i spent in russia and i realized if you added up, i've spent about a year of my life uh, in russia oh wow in yeah 10 day two week increments sure uh, yeah so it's, it's amazing sometimes the lord leads us into something we go in reluctantly But, uh, you know, like John Wesley, you know, he went reluctantly to Aldersgate Street and that night changed his life when he uh, encounters the living Christ. Well, this was my Aldersgate experience. Uh, So I I was a pastor for another 20 years after that, and so led my churches into involvement in Russia. And then when I retired, uh, uh, went part time on staff, I'm I'm kind of the team coordinator. Of course, I haven't I haven't been able to send many teams to Russia this last nine months. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can't get out of here and you can't get into there.
0: Exactly. Yeah. But
1: uh, um, basically what I do is prepare teams to go and do ministry in Russia, primarily three regions where the ministry orphan street that I work with uh, works. And basically I teach them how to not to, not to be ugly Americans. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How to, how to go as servants, uh, we we go as representatives of the kingdom of God, and our goal is just to to share the love of Christ. I, I always remind people, it's not like we're taking Jesus to Russia, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Been, He's been there a while. They've yeah. been Christians for just over a thousand years, like you know, about four times longer than we've been a country. Right. Right. <laughs> and uh, really, we work with Jesus with our Russian friends, and and just. Try to have pockets of the kingdom of God, safe places, um, sanctuaries where uh, orphans, older orphans, we, we work, but people think orphans, they think infants. Right, right. The orphans we work with are 16 to 22, 23 year olds. Yeah. They get out of their orphanage, no life skills. They go from 100% institutional living to 100% independent living with no, no preparation.
0: Yeah, they, they don't know transition. how to boil an egg.
1: Now they're cooking for themselves. They don't know yeah. how to handle money, and now all of a sudden they've got to do their own grocery shopping and get a flat to live in, and those kind of things. And they just don't do well. Um, yeah, uh, Russian orphans have one of the highest suicide rates of any adolescent group in the in the world. Mm. Somewhere between ten and fifteen percent of Russian orphans will attempt suicide within two years of being released from the orphanage. Wow! And uh, so we work to give like transitions into. Uh, into uh, a productive, self-sufficient
0: life. And of course, yeah. part of that is just bringing them into community. They're not. Allowed. Yeah, that's a big thing. I know when I went, when I was preparing to go in 2013, um, yeah. our mutual friend, Brooks' dad, Doug Patterson yeah. was um, sort of the, I guess the leader of that group that went. And, and I remember meeting with him while I was trying to decide whether to accept the invitation or not, you know, and, Um, we, uh, we sat down for lunch at a, at a Panera bread and cranberry PA. And, uh, and I remember asking Doug, like, so tell me what it is we're going to do. Like, what's, what, what are we going to do when we go to Russia? And he said to me, the first thing you got to get out of your head is the idea that we're going to do anything we're going to be. Mm -hmm. And, and that really resonated with me. And I think was probably a big part of what helped me make the decision, um, to jump on board and, and to be part of that particular trip and and to get involved kind of with Orphan's Tree in, in, in a broader way as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that, cause I could see that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't just this typical sort of what we might now think of as like colonialist right. type of mission right. um, that it was, it was all about relationality, right? It was going to build relationships with people in a part of the world. And especially with a group of young people that have no, skills, as you said, for that kind of thing, yeah. um, to try to impact their life positively. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I really appreciate about uh, the ministry of Orphan
1: Street, um, one of the churches I pastored uh, had a mission wall. And anytime uh, that church sent on a mission team, and they sent a lot of them, you bring something back from the mission field and you put it on this wall. And there were like 28 nations on that wall. And uh, uh, yet, you know, and that's one of the reasons when I was asked to go to Russia, I thought, I haven't been to these 28 places yet. <laughs> I'm already involved, you know, why, why should I go there? But one of the things I loved about the, the ministry style, you know, the leader sets the atmosphere of any organization or ministry. Well, George Steiner's is mm-hmm. a relational person who said, we're going there to work with Russians to help Russians minister to Russians. And our goal has always been because you, you never know in any country you're working with, but especially in Russia, uh, I've been going there for 25 years. And every time I go, I think, well, this will be my last trip, you know, with political tensions and just the world as right. it is, you know, now we didn't think it would be a virus that would keep us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We thought it would be more political tensions or something like that. And uh, so our goal has always been to build a ministry that could survive well, without us Americans being involved, to train, encourage, and and enable Russians to minister to orphans. And uh, this last nine months, one of the good things that's come out of it, you know, God who manages to bring good out of a lot of things, for me, one of the good things out of the pandemic was I got to write a book I wanted to write. <laughs> uh, small thing with all things considered, but at least, you know, it's a good thing. One of the good things that's happened in our ministry is it's shown That we've been more successful than we might have suspected we were in preparing our staff because the ministry has not only kept going, but has grown and developed. It's almost in some ways like, well, we got out of the way so God could. (laughs) And of course, our Russian friends say to us, we miss your presence and your encouragement because that's the biggest thing we get. Sure. Yeah. But they are they are just amazing us with the creativity and the commitment in fact the thing we keep saying to our russian staff we have probably a little over 30 uh russians who are you know, part of our ministry there we keep saying to them slow down a little bit take care of yourself they are so mm-hmm. passionate about caring for the orphanage grads. We call them grads. What else do you call somebody when they leave an orphanage? Yeah, yeah. You know, they're not former orphans. You're if you're an orphan, you're always an orphan. The mindset, right. the the things you've got to deal with. So we call them grads, graduates. Um, they're so passionate about our grads that we really have to slow them down because they'll work their fingers to the bone for these. Yeah. And and but on the other hand, it's been such a blessing to to see that that they see themselves as our partners, not as people dependent on us. Yeah. We're all dependent on the Lord together. We encourage each other. But, uh, man, if we were going over there to encourage them, I want to tell you the last nine months, they have been encouraging us. Yeah. And making me up my game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's such an incarnational model, I think, um, that that you and George and the, the early founders of that organization put into place. Yeah. Um, and, and to see it kind of come into that kind of fruition in, in, in the way that Jesus tends to work, right. In the least expected way, um, these things kind of come about and that, that kind of brings me back, um, a little bit to, to the idea of the book that you wrote, um, about this really famous, um, icon from the Russian Orthodox, um, tradition, uh, um, of, of the Trinity by, by this guy, Rublev. And I'd like, I'd like to hear a little bit for you about, um. I guess you know through Orphan's Tree, obviously going to Russia, you you, you kind of developed an interest in um, Russian Orthodoxy, and and so can you talk a little bit about how um, how that interest began to, grew, to grow? I, I guess. Um, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about, because the book is focused on this particular icon or painting, um, and and we can unpack a little bit about what that means, but I think iconography is so widely misunderstood in mm-hmm. the Western church, and in particular in Western Protestant traditions, yeah. right? Yeah, um, So, So what was it that led you? to develop an interest in Russian orthodoxy and iconography enough, enough to compel you to write this book. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. If you had told me that 25 years ago I'd be
1: writing a book on a Russian icon, it would be like, well, <laughs> you got to tell me what that is. Yeah. I got to, I got to admit to two prejudices. I, I think God loves, God loves, you know, it, it says in, in Ephesians that Jesus has broken down the dividing walls of hostility. Well, we all live behind dividing walls, yeah. Uh, of prejudices that we may be aware of, we may not be aware of. Two that God really had a deal with me on were number one, prejudice against Russians. And number two, mm-hmm. prejudice against the formal worship style of the Orthodox Church as, a, as an evangelical uh, Christian. Um, you know, I was raised, like I said, during the Cold War. Uh, one of my earliest memories is sitting at our dining room table and my mother crying. And I don't remember my mother often crying. And they were tears of fear because it was 1957 and I'm nine years old and Russia has put up a satellite called Sputnik, a little bit larger than a basketball. Mm. First satellite to, to, to circumvent the earth. And my mom is crying for fear because she said, if they can put a satellite, there, satellite up there, they can drop bombs on us. Now, how many bombs you could drop from a satellite <laughs> But the point is, my earliest memory of the Russians is they made my mother cry. <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> As yeah. a kid, that's an unforgivable sin. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I was raised on that quote. Russia was the enemy. Um, <laughs> the early James Bond films, who's the enemy? Yeah,
0: exactly. Russians.
1: Russian spies. Of course, James Bond movies, they're. Beautiful female Russian spots. but still, of course, <laughs> they're the enemy. So uh, when I said I really didn't want to, Ru- want to go to Russia, I really didn't want to go to Russia. I had no desire to go there. Um, to me, that was enemy territory, even after the Berlin Wall fell. And, and that. that was the first prejudice. The second prejudice was that I really had heard that Russian Orthodox or Orthodox uh, believers uh, worship icons. That they worship these pictures. And uh, very early on, I I I learned that not to be true. Um I really came to appreciate, you know, yeah, what I see now when I go into a lot of Protestant churches, especially uh, you know, I, I speak a good bit from in churches and and a lot of them, I, I don't know what they're a uh, name for them, except they're they're not sanctuaries, they're worship warehouses. They're like yeah. this this and, and here again, this is the critical. I understand what is trying to be done here, Uh, but there are rooms that are basically black, no windows, so that lighting can be controlled, and sound Mm. can be controlled, but if the lights, you know, you just put on the lights for people to come in, it's a pretty sterile place, Yeah, as opposed to an orthodox church where every inch of the walls is covered with artwork, Mm. color, and vitality, and light, and you just feel that when you walk in there, that you're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses that, that silently speak to you about, about the faith and faithfulness to, to the gospel. So there, there's that, that sense. Well, my original sense was, you know, they're icon worshippers. Uh, one of the first things we did was a three week summer camp. And uh, we just brought orphans together for, <laughs> one of the nice things when we started going to Russia is under communism, there were young pioneer camps. almost every Russian child would go to a young pioneer camp over the summer and they learn about you know Lenin and 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 uh, uh, the, the importance of the, the communist system and it was it, it was heavily indoctrinational. Well, all mm-hmm. these camps now, when communism fell, are desperate to have people come and rent them so we could get camps really cheap. So for the first couple of years, we did a lot of camps, and I had a camp with a couple of hundred you know, Russian orphans, and uh, I took a team over from the church I was pastoring at the time. We were going to do the first week and a half. Another church was going to come in and do the second week and a half, and the middle Wednesday of this, we would both be there so we could hand the camp over to them. Well, we had just seen God do some marvelous things in the lives of not only the orphans, but their caregivers. During that week and have it. Right. we're excited about it. And we're sharing it with the team that's coming in. And the leader of the team, after we share, says, well, it's obvious now what we need to do. Uh, these orphans and their caregivers are icon worshipers. And our goal is to warn them of the dangers of icon worship. Oh, no. And to convince them that they need to destroy these icons. And it's like, my heart just sank." My heart oh. just sank. Even that early on in my time there, I realized that I had misunderstood what what icons were. Yeah. Um, in my book, I call them the original PowerPoint. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you know, it's funny today, as sterile as many Protestant churches are, uh, we've rediscovered beauty and art and color in PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. And how many of our churches now have, have PowerPoint presentations? even more, much more traditional churches have kind of adapted PowerPoint. And what is it? We, we're visual learners. We, yeah. we love to be in a situation where we can, uh, wait a second, sorry about that. We love to be in a situation where, where all of our senses are involved, not just our auditory senses. And PowerPoint's helped us to do that. Um, well, the Russians discovered that like, you know, a thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Experiential um, worship is not a new trend. right? No. And, and the reason for it is very similar to, to the reason why uh, American churches and European churches have stained glass windows. Um, churches developed during a time when the vast majority of the population was illiterate. Mm-hmm. They couldn't read Bibles, even if they had them. They couldn't read books on theology. So you paint a painting and you either put it in glass or as the icon is on wood that tells the story of the gospel or highlights the qualities of God's people, God's men and women over the years, the saints. And, you know, most stained glass windows, like most icons, were used to teach people the basics of the gospel. When you understand that. Uh, and and realize that even though today in America the vast majority of us can read, there's still something about artwork that speaks to us.
0: Yeah. And uh,
1: we've thrown that out of the church. We we threw the baby out with the bathwater in what what's called the iconoclastic movement, where it's true, it's true that sometimes icons and statuary and other pieces of artwork were misused. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but we humans tend to pendulum. We go from one extreme to the other. Well, they're being misused, so let's get rid of all of them,
0: right? Right. Rather than trying to find the legitimate use, yeah, of artwork, and so uh, you know that really, what you just said played out for me in the trip that I made to Ivanovo. <laughs> we um we arrived in the airport in Moscow, and and we had this, you know, basically like an airport shuttle bus that drove us <laughs> four hours from Moscow to Ivanovo, and um I remember the 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 driver had like little, I don't know, like two inch high various icons on his dashboard. Mm-hmm. And I remember turning to our friend Brooke and saying something about, oh, you know, that kind of a cool expression of his faith. And she said, it's basically a rabbit's foot, you know, yeah. <laughs> that there was just this sort of superstition around that. Yeah. Yeah. But then on the on the opposite side of that, while we were in Ivanovo, we went to um, an Orthodox church, Father Makarios' church mm-hmm. um, in Ivanovo, And it was it was a midweek service. It was in a part of the city that was, you know, it's an old industrial textile city. Um, All of the folks there were it looked a lot like a lot of American congregations, you know, 60 years old and older, probably. And, um, you know, just the faithful. And of course, you know, the, the whole service is in old Russian. So us Americans can't understand a word of it. But there was this moment where I saw this this little old woman who was kind of standing in front of me participating in the service. And she had gone to, to light a candle and there was an icon, about a six foot tall icon on the wall above this station where she lit the candle. And I, I just was watching her and I saw her face just suddenly like, it was almost like this sense of fear or awe or something overcame her. And she started like, she would kiss her hand and then place her hand at the feet of the icon. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea what was happening in that moment, but it was one of the ho- most holy things I've ever witnessed. And, and so I think that's, you know, that's the other side of that mm-hmm. story where the icon is such an aid to the worship of the people. Yes, exactly. And not just, you know, a, a superstitious kind of symbol. Yeah, yeah, And, you know, it's probably true over the years that some have
1: like, you know, the, the, the thing that, that often we go back to biblically uh, when talking about icons is the story of the uh, the snake on the pole in the wilderness, mm. uh, where, where uh, the, the, the people sin against God and and uh, snakes come and bite them. And God gives them this pole with a bronze serpent on it. And if you look at the pole, you live. Uh, great. Except over the years, people began to forget the message of it.
0: <laughs> right
1: and 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 worship the pole and yeah. so hezekiah uh later king had to destroy it because there there is this in us because i guess we're physical beings and god's a spiritual being that that we really latch on to physical things and we just have to be careful that the the, the medium doesn't eliminate the message uh yeah and that happened and that has happened over the years in icons but again it's the result there is the response of that to destroy icons or bring them back to their proper use i often think yeah. about this in relation to the orthodox church how well would we do in america if for some reason the government shut all churches imprisoned all pastors and spiritual leaders and for 70 years to be a Christian means you lost your job, maybe lost your kids. Uh, you know, the vast majority of people in Russian orphanages when communism fell were political orphans. Mm. They were there because the, their parents were not towing the body line. Now there were others there because of alcoholism and other reasons, but a large, a large part of them. Um, how well would we do? I. I Credit the Orthodox Church, these people survived about 72 years of intense persecution, Yeah, driven underground, kept the faith. And I think the icons they had in their home that were a reminder to them as parents passed on what they meant to their children, and they passed it on to their children, we're talking about three or four generations here. And when communism fell, that faith just popped right back up to the surface. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have just have to credit the Orthodox Church for maintaining the
0: faith under severe persecution for over 70 years. Yeah. So what is it about this particular icon, the Trinity, the one that you wrote the book about that, that really captivated you?
1: <laughs> My first trip to Russia, we stopped at a place called Sergei Passat. It's a it's a monastery and uh, there's a church there um, and a cathedral and a uh, uh, was we walk up the steps into it, and what I remember about this was it's the coldest day I can ever remember anywhere. I mean, it was cold. Um, the hotel we stayed in, uh, the, the there was ice on the inside of the windows. And I remember, you know, we used to get about you, you need to take a credit card to Russia, you know, don't leave home without it. So you can scrape the inside of your <laughs> bus windows or your hotel windows. It was just one of those, you know, bone chilling Russian cold days. So we're anxious to get into this church and its relative warmth, but about the archway of the church, going in, I look up and there's this small painting with three figures, and I I've kind of stop and I look at it. it was just I was just mesmerized by it for a second. And George Stein, head of our ministry, is coming up the steps behind me, and he says, "That's a painting by a guy named Rublev. It's called Rublev's Trinity," and he tells me a little bit of the story of it. Well. That's 1995, so for my first day or two, first trip, I was connected to this icon. And so over the years, I would see it all over the place because it's, it's probably, uh, if not the most reproduced, one of the most reproduced icons in, in uh, the Orthodox uh, circles. And so you see it everywhere. A lot of people have it in their homes. Um, you see it in almost every church. Um, so uh, the more I, I looked at it, the more I, I looked at its meaning, the more fascinated I was by the amount of biblical truth that's packed into this painting. It's really a very simple painting, three figures seated at a table, and really looking at it uh, artistically, there's seven elements, three people at a table, the table, and behind each person something that lets us know which member of the Trinity they are. Behind the Father is a house. In my Father's house are many rooms. Mm-hmm. Behind the Son is a tree, tree of life, tree from which the cross is made. Interestingly, in the New Testament, the cross is always referred to as the tree.
0: Mm, yeah. And then behind
1: the Holy Spirit, a mountain, because the Holy Spirit is strength and mountains are a symbol of strength. Although I kind of like the fact that the mountain almost looks like, it's kind of leaning toward the Father's house, almost looks like it's <laughs> a tsunami wave and, yeah <laughs> you know, it's just the power the power of that so it's very simple icon but all the details of it a Rubeleuf really was saying how do i take the nature of god who is father son and the holy spirit and put that in visual form my my book isn't about Rublev's painting my book is about the trinity god the father son and the holy spirit that is expressed in in rubric right this is his his sermon as i say in the book i love the fact that orthodox don't talk about painting an icon they talk about writing yeah an icon and you don't look at an icon you read an icon it's a message it's a sermon and you know as a as a pastor as theologian i've read an awful lot of books and in preparation for this book Read an awful lot of books on the Trinity and uh, a lot of words. <laughs> yeah. But I I I just love the fact that when you when you look at Rublev's Trinity, you see all that compacted into a painting that's basic, it's very simple, very beautiful, but very expansive uh, in its message. This is you know, Rublev is in a sense trying to do the impossible to give us a picture of the invisible God. Yeah. And I think he succeeded pretty well
0: with that. I think it's amazing. I think it's a, an amazing example of how art speaks to us in ways that language can't, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's visual art or or music or poetry or whatever, you know, things that have um, some kind of a, a rhythm or a cadence. Because even, you know, when I look at, at this painting or when I try to read this icon, I guess maybe is a better way to say it, there is... There's a movement to it that is beyond just the visual, right and and it does it speaks in ways that um that just our our common language can't quite get there
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, and it the thing is it's uh, i I come to see it now as not an orthodox painting, but a Christian painting uh, be, because it's not there's you don't have to be orthodox to understand the mess right yeah, yeah it, it's, it's just a representation of, of uh, biblical truth uh you know when i was looking at the, both the title because rublev's trinity for most people is like what's that
0: who's Rublev?
1: yeah yet that's the title of the painting actually interestingly the, the actual titling of this title of this painting is abraham's three visitors it's actually based on the story in genesis 18 where abraham and sarah get three angelic visitors who tell them that god's about to destroy sodom and they need to get their nephew a uh, lot out of there and uh, um, they they realize these aren't just three humans that there's something more than that they're angelic Rublev pushes it one step further and says they're more than just angelic mm-hmm. the the their representation of the one true living god and so uh, and, and because in in Orthodox theologies and others, uh, there's difficulty in trying to paint God. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. And, again, to make the invisible visible. And usually our representations of God are as misleading as they are helpful. Yeah. Uh, you know, we usually think of Michelangelo's uh, Sistine Chapel with the old guy with the gray beard reaching down right. and, and touching the hand of, Ab- of uh, Adam to give him life. and. We understand, you know, the gray beard and the, you know, he's the ancient of days or God is ancient of days. And so you're trying to say God's been around for a long time, but that doesn't mean God is old. There's a difference between being eternal and being old. Mm. And God isn't old. God's You can say God's eternally young as well as eternally, you know, ancient. Um, Rublev paints the Trinity as three young persons. And I don't even say young men because they're really not obviously male figures. Right, yeah. Um, he's trying to say, you know, we're in the created image of God, male and female. He created us, or God created us in the image of God. So the image of God is male and female. And so uh, there's a, an androgynous uh, uh, look to, to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, but also they're young. Yeah. Um, you know, they just, they're, they're and they're vital um I've sometimes says that the god of michelangelo looks more arthritic than that <laughs> um, where where the god of rublev is is a god is that who's young and vital and uh, and active and yeah. that is god so uh you know that rublev is walking a fine line here <laughs> uh, yeah yeah you know, and kind of says okay i'm really painting abraham's three visitors here wink wink because if you look at it closely they're more than just angelic figures they're they're divine figures they're they're god figures
0: sorry to interrupt the conversation but i wanted to take just a minute to thank some of the folks that help us make the accidental tomatoes podcast happen through our patreon giving platform For as little as $2 a month, you can be part of a growing group of people who are committed to helping create and curate all the great content for the Accidental Tomatoes community. We're grateful for the contributions of all of our patrons, and I'd like to recognize our Master Gardener-level contributors, Jen and Harry Morgan, and Kevin and Heather Malcolm. To learn more about how you can support this podcast and the community we're creating, just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes. You can also support our work by simply leaving us a rating and review on your favorite streaming app that helps other folks find our community and participate in the conversation. And now back to the podcast. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things, you know, that I've been learning through, um, through a lot of the work that I do, the friendships I've been, um, making, with folks who might consider themselves uh, the term I keep using is spiritual exiles, right? Folks who have mm-hmm. kind of lost trust and faith in the institutional aspects of religion, but 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 a lot of those folks have this really deep interest in some of these ancient expressions of faith. Yeah, um, and I think iconography maybe is one of those things where I think can keep people connected to to whatever their faith is, whether it involves you know institutional religion. Or, or not. What, what might you say to, to folks like that, that are kind of in that place, right. That have for a lot of, in a lot of cases, very understandably rejected institutional mm-hmm. religion, but are still very, very interested in matters of spirituality, very interested in um, who Jesus was and is. Um, how, how can things like these icons and, and, Rublev's painting in particular. How how do you see that helping folks connect with that and maybe work through these processes of deconstruction, reconstruction? Yeah, uh, kind of uh, really good question, because I think it really has a, a message into that.
1: You know, I, I think that what's happening in the church today is a kind of uh, iconoclastic movement, an e- ecclesiastical <laughs> Yeah, where where we're realizing that maybe some of the forms of the past are not the forms that are best for promoting the gospel or mm. fellowship or mission, and so we're we're trying to deconstruct and reconstruct those. And I think the same. I think it has the same potential and the same danger as the uh, iconoclasm that was in the eight hundreds, where where icons were destroyed. Do we go from having them to destroying them all, or do we try to find their properties? What are the proper structures? What are the structures that help us? Um, you know, uh, the, your, your fellowship called New Wineskins, I love I love the name of that. That's what we're struggling to find out. What are the new wineskins?
0: Yeah, yeah. We've discovered
1: the old wineskins don't do it. Uh, so what are the new wineskins? There, uh, the opposite of the old wineskins is not no wineskins. Yes. It's yeah. new wine skins. And I, I think the key in both lives painting and the ecclesiology of today is focusing not on the wine skin, but on the wine. W- what is it that that we want to do as Christians? We want to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength and mind and love our neighbors as ourselves. I mean, that's that's the wine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And. We found that the structures that have developed and hardened over the years are keeping us from doing that. Mm. Uh, where I, what I see the, the value of, of refinding some of these ancient ways of expressing faith is that they aren't siloed into denominations or, or historical churches. When you look at at Rublev's icon as what it is, an artistic expression of an awesome god it it takes you out of this is an orthodox expression or a protestant Mm. or a catholic expression this is just the expression of a fellow believer of what he's experienced of god and he wants to share that experience with us this is an evangelical painting uh one of the things that i i in the best sense of the word in the the sense that it's an invitation into fellowship yeah yeah uh Not in the, not in the denominational sense, or certainly not in the political sense, but in the relational sense. Mm. Evangelicism is the good news that the God of the universe loves you and wants to be in relationship with you and invite you into relationship with those around you into, into God's family. Uh, The table in this is, to me, it's one of the most interesting parts. Uh, Over the years, usually, uh, a circle has been a symbol of eternity because a circle doesn't have a beginning or an end. It's also a symbol of equality. There's no head on a circular table. That's why King Arthur <laughs> and the Knights right. of the Round Table, you know, sat at the round table because even Arthur wasn't seen as at the head of the table, you know? Um, so you would think Rubel if we put a round table, but he doesn't. Puts a square table problem with the square table, this has four sides and the Trinity is three persons.
0: <laughs> mm.
1: But that's the invitation. The fourth side is open for us. There's, there's a place for us at God's table. And God invites us to take our place at the table. And the amazing thing is, and I love to think about this, I, I, uh, I have above my computer, if I look at the wall up above my computer, I have a huge copy of, of Rublis icon. Uh, It's probably, I don't know, four, four four and a half feet by three feet. And I just, during my times of just coming into the presence of the Lord, I just love to sit back and look at that and see that place at the table and know that's reserved for me. But the other amazing thing to me is it's the same table that Andre Rublev sat at in 1600s when he painted this painting. Mm. Um, It's the same table that every person is invited to sit at it isn't a single place;
0: it's a yeah. fellowship
1: place. We fellowship with God. We fellowship with each other. Uh, you know, John Wesley. Uh, I think you've heard of him.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, the name's familiar. Yeah, about, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I love what he says
1: that uh, that every every Christian needs to find Christian companions or make them, because the Bible knows nothing of a solitary religion. Yeah. That, that the Christian faith is, you know, I can remember in Sunday school growing up, there was a song we sang that, that had the words in it, just Jesus and me. I think it was called On the Jericho Road, just Jesus and me. That's pretty close to heretical. The, <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> it isn't just Jesus and me. Um, it's We're in this together. And even the very nature of God, that God is a a. Trinity, three persons in eternal fellowship, in, in eternal oneness, eternal unity, eternal fellowship. That's the image of, of what we are to be. One of the things we see in Rublev's Trinity that really is a is a model to us of what we're called to be as, as Christians, is the way they relate to each other. The, God is not a single entity, God is in three persons. Capital P, persons that are not just human personalities, but something beyond that. But still, three persons, each with with will and e- emotion and and uh, uh, self awareness, and the way they relate to each other. Rublev has painted the Trinity is in in a way that's been called the humility of the Trinity. You know, by the way, if I'm the God of the universe, I'm probably going to wear a name tag that says oh, the "universe." <laughs> 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 God, God doesn't. The Holy Spirit, kind of his head is a little bowed, and he's looking at the communion chalice and saying, don't look at me. Look at what Jesus has done in his sacrifice on the cross. So you look at the son, and the son's looking at the father as if to say, don't look at me. Look at the father. What a wonderful plan he has for your life. You look at the father, and the father's looking over at the Holy Spirit with his head a little bit bowed toward him. I'm like, don't look at me. Isn't the Holy Spirit wonderful? What what the Holy Spirit can do in your life, mm. and it's almost like each member of the Trinity is trying to get the attention off themselves onto the other members of the Trinity. And you know, we're told in Scripture, "I do one another and show no honor." Well, that's a very godlike thing. Can you yeah. imagine? Can you imagine what our fellowships would be like if every one of us was concerned that the other people in our fellowship we're known
0: and loved and honored. Yeah. Wouldn't that be
1: a great fellowship to be a part of? Yeah. Yeah. It's called the
0: church. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and I love how that even speaks into kind of bigger contexts like justice, right. And compassion and mercy, all of those things that, that I think a lot of us are trying to rediscover um, in, in our ecclesiology that, you know, I think for a long time we, we kind of bought into this notion of, um, you know, individual salvation being the goal yeah. and that that's what the whole story was about. And and we're starting to rediscover. And I think things like, you know, these, some of these ancient forms are helping us to rediscover that the real nature of God is love and that, that we best live out our faith, whatever that looks like when we're living out of that kind of love. Yeah. And and that the humility of the Trinity, I think is a a really kind of beautiful way of pointing us yeah. towards that. Yeah. and and then to invite us to that table and Mm. all of us all
1: of us and there's no sense of you've got to meet this qualification you know there's an equality in the invitation whosoever will may come is the way it's been put in the past and somehow we've we've lost that and and, yeah yeah and i think this this uh icon this painting is not only uh, evangelistic but it is a justice painting it is a way of saying that there is an equality in the in the Godhead, and created in the image of that Godhead, there's an equality in us, and we need to not just recognize it but celebrate it.
0: Yeah, and I came ac- across a quote um, over the weekend from uh, Brian Zond, who's um, a, a Christian author pastor, and I can't remember the quote exactly, but it was along the lines of, you know, we're we're discovering that we never needed either the battlefield or the ba- ballot box, and we never needed to take up the sword. All we ever needed was the sacrament, mm-hmm. um, and and that notion that that Rublev gives us of of the open invitation to the table, I think, really yeah. uh, encapsulizes that. That that's all we ever really needed. Yes, yes,
1: yeah. There's just something in it that you know. One of the one of the real messages of of, of the icon is that. Um, even though all three heads are, are bowed, there's almost like a little bit more of that in the in the spirit and the sun. And it, it's almost like the painting. Uh, though we tend in in our culture to read from left to right, the painting is best read from right to left. Starting mm, yeah. with the Holy Spirit through the sun, and even the tree behind the sun and the mountain behind the spirit lean toward the Father's house. The whole message of this icon is. Come home, hmm. come home where you belong. Uh, I love the fact, artistic license. Um, the story in Genesis 18 has Abraham sitting in front of his tent. It's very clear about that. Abraham sitting in front of the tent when these three visitors show up. But if you look behind the father figure in the painting, uh, it's not a tent, that's a pretty substantial house. Right. You know the, the house of John 14 in my father's house. And it's a two story house which I think is kind of cool with the big <laughs> window in the second story and immediately uh, my imagination goes to the father of the prodigal son standing at that second story window watching for for his son to come home mm. and and that really is is everything kind of points toward that leans toward that in this painting that god is just waiting for you to come home and you know, we, that that word home is such a, a powerful. Yeah. I, I tell a story in the, in the book about a young girl named Natasha. Natasha had a pretty tough go of it in the orphanage. And uh, Natasha has uh, two children deserted by the guy who was the father of the children and uh, <clears throat> struggling to make them. And, and she lives with her two children in a single room. And this is very common among orphanage graduates, a single room that that has uh no cooking facilities there's just enough room in there for a, a, a beds a bunk beds for her kids and a bed for her and and a few pieces of furniture she shares a kitchen with either two or three other families she shares a bathroom with two or three other families so basically she has this one room and she said to me one time um she had a friend and i over for for dinner god uh, bless her and uh, mm-hmm. uh she said you know uh, kind of, kind of indicating where she said, this is my bedroom, but the ministry center, which is the place we have for grads to go to, the ministry center is my living room.
0: Mm. And I
1: just love that, that thought. She drops her kids off in the morning at school and then she immediately goes to the ministry center, which is a building we have that any orphan can come in anytime. Yeah. And it has a kitchen they cook together. They learn life skills. But mainly, they just hang out with each other, hang out with our staff, and, and find love and acceptance. It's her living room. For her, that's the father's house. She has a bedroom. But every day, she finds her way to the father's house. And that's where she finds love and hope. But we all need that. We need that place yeah. to go, you know, where that, that becomes to us the sanctuary, the father's house. Yeah. And Ruben just just... So clearly says, Look, it's there, it's waiting for you. What are you waiting for? <laughs> you know? And the great thing is, when we get to the father's house, we find that it's not just the father that's there, but the whole family. Yeah. And, you know, um, audio adrenaline, will come and go. <laughs> it's a big, big house, you know, yeah. lots, of, lots of room. And oh. that's the invitation of the, the painting. So, regardless of what kind of a structure we are or are not involved in of a Christian nature. Now, the invitations of the Father's house has nothing to do with that. It's an invitation yeah. to us and to those around us to come and share in fellowship with the Father and with each other. And I, I think we're finding more effective ways to do that. Yeah, I think there's, you know, as a person who's still involved in what most would see a traditional church, um, I'm we're finding in there that within that structure, groups are finding ways yeah. <laughs> to discover yeah. that life. And
0: you know, and yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and others,
1: maybe because of disappointment or woundedness in the church, have to find that in yeah. in in other structures. But that desire, that desire to be right with God and right with each other, that desire is in us.
0: And it's yeah. a God-given desire. The gospel is the answer to that desire. Yeah. I, I keep getting drawn back to that table imagery and, and the way you've explained it. And and then in in the context of coming home, one of the things I remember most clearly from um, the trip that I made to Ivanovo was when um when the the orpha the students would get out of that because they would go to like a tech center school. And as soon as school was out at whatever, two or three o'clock in the afternoon, they'd make a beeline to the ministry center where we were already kind of hanging out. And the the first place everyone would go, and this was in in Avonovo, I know there's a new ministry center there now since I've been there. Yes. But this was in the old, which was just a small flat um, on like a little side street. And the first place everyone would go was the kitchen where Antonina <laughs> was always cooking something amazing and that kitchen was tiny <laughs> and i know like the day that you and i met i remember there must have been 30 people yeah, yeah. packed in that kitchen having a meal and and nobody left to go to another room to eat like we might do you know at a thanksgiving dinner in right. the us when yeah, we get crowded yeah. everybody wanted to be in the kitchen yeah. like that was such the center of where everything happened and when i look at you know how we're kind of rediscovering like dinner church movements and things like that pub church kind of things like we do with new wineskins that even though it's now virtual, you know, the the spirit of that is still there. Yeah. Um, There's something about, you know, that, that shared meal, that, that shared experience of being around the table. Um, And again, that, that aspect of, of the icon just is so compelling in that, that very open invitation to the table.
1: What, what words do we love to hear anymore than it's time to eat, you know? Yeah. And, and really, when you think about it. It's the it, most common human experience, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And, and I don't care how good a meal is. A meal alone is not as good. I th- you know, it's kind of like, I, I, I'd rather have a hot dog with you <laughs> than a steak by myself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You
1: know, because it's, it. it you know, food is what what we we come together around the table, you know, where I think a lot of us are struggling right now. Like my wife and I are dealing with, you know, Thanksgiving, we usually go to a family place where 25, 30 people are crammed into a fairly small space. And we're, you know, can we do that this year, you know, and like we can have turkey on our own, but I, I'm sorry, that doesn't cut it. Yeah. 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 Um, there, there is something in the, it. In the, and I think that's a God given thing, that communal desire uh, to be together around around food and that the original image of what the body of Christ is, is every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you know, it's kind of like gathered together around a table, remembering that Jesus is there with us. That's really that's the
0: earliest image of church Gather yeah. around the table, eating and remembering Jesus is there with us. Yeah, and what a simple way to recapture. Yeah, maybe you know what's what's really at the heart of all of that.
1: Maybe so, simple is the word. Like I said, the yeah. thing that impresses me about this painting is it's
0: it's simple. It's powerful, but yeah. powerful in its simplicity. Yeah, yeah. And just I guess just for listeners' benefit too, I'm I'm going to put a um uh, an image of of the icon will be on the website uh, for the podcast. So um, as we've been talking about this, you know, to if you want to go back and and look at um the the imagery itself uh, I want to make sure folks know that that's going to be available. Yeah, we'll be so. talking
1: about a piece of artwork and not be not
0: be Yeah, yeah that's, is a, that's the downside of the audio yeah. um format here but um Yeah. Yeah, so well John I'm I'm so grateful that you've spent some time um kind of coming to the end of the time we've got here and I don't want to hold you up too much is um is there anything else that you're working on that folks uh, might be interested in and How can people find you and find the book and and get connected there?
1: Well, uh, you know, it's funny. I read somewhere that every person has one good book in them. The problem is most people write two. (laughs) (laughs) You know, people say, are you going to write another book? Well, first of all, I'm so glad I wrote this one. And I'm so glad that process is done.
0: Uh, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, it's, you know, I feel very good about the finished product. I feel like it's a God thing for me and an answer to prayer for me, but no, I, I can't say right now, do I have other thoughts and things that, this is one of the ways that I, I share the things that I think are important in my life. You know, I'm still a chaplain in a, in a high school. I, uh, um, I still do a lot of work with Russia and Russians and people involved. So I find a lot of channels out if God would give me a burden to write another book, um, I've been thinking about spam, by the way. (laughs) Spam is a wonderful thing. Uh, The the original spam, you know, canned meat was uh, spiced pork and ham. uh, Is what spam stands for.
0: Right. But I've been
1: thinking about uh, what is required for spiritual life. And I think about four things, scripture, prayer, accountability, and mission or ministry, spam, you know. Although I do think it's probably better to reverse it make it MAPS, M-A-P-S, because <laughs> I really believe, and so here I'm kind of, if I go in a direction, here it is. I think we start with mission. Uh, this idea that, you know, somebody comes to faith and the first thing we say is you got to get into the Bible and get into prayer. And that is so true. But I find the people who are the most motivated to do that are people who take on some kind of ministry or mission. Yeah, yeah. And Then all of a sudden you need the accountability. You go to other people and say, help me to do this. And right. You need right. the prayer.
0: You need the scripture. So
1: um, is there something else I'm kind of working through in my mind? Yeah, spam.
0: <laughs> <laughs> not not in a, in a Monty Python-esque way. <laughs> no, no.
1: Before there's so many good uh, uh, spam things on, you know,
0: yeah, yeah, on yeah. YouTube <laughs> that,
1: you know, you could really work with that. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that's that's kind of where it's at. I I find I have multiple channels. I I think we all need to find the channels where we can say, this is, you know, I I say that to the teenagers I work with, I mean, I'm a few years older than them. And the only difference between them and me, I don't think I'm better than them. And a lot of cases, I don't know some more (laughs) spiritual than some of them, you know? Uh, Some of them really challenge me in their commitment to Christ. Uh, the only difference is I'm a little further down the road and I've learned some things as I've walked down the road that I can look back and say, here's what I've learned. So I'm trying to find channels by which I can just say to people, this is what I've learned, not because I'm better or smarter, just because I've been around a little longer. You know? So that's, that's what we do. In terms of the book itself, uh, my goal is to break even.
0: <laughs> Anybody
1: who's read the book knows, you know, especially when you sell it on Amazon, uh, uh, you don't make any money on a walk. Your, your margins are thin. Yeah, your margins are razor thin. But you do it because you have a message to share. Yeah. And uh, uh, I also have a website on which it can be ordered, which is ruble-trinity.com. And I throw in some extra things there to just thank people for doing that. But my, my, my hope is that when people read the book, they, they just have a deeper appreciation. One of the things I say in the book is I'm very careful about the way I use the word awesome. Um, we have an awesome God. Awesome means like it stops you in your tracks, blows you out of your socks, amazes you. There's very few things in life that are really awesome. Mm, yeah. But we throw that word along, around a lot like, oh man, these french fries are awesome. There's no <laughs> such thing as an awesome french fry. <laughs> you know? um, but, but God is awesome. And if people, people can get a sense, and if I can be renewed in my own sense of the awesomeness of our God, it's just amazing who god is and what god has done and what god wants to do and entrusts for us to do in each other's lives and the big thing i'm just seeing today is what we talked about earlier just the way he's god is breaking down the dividing walls of hostility and making us one yeah and that's that's an amazing thing to see so that is i just you know i'm glad i can hang around long enough to see some of that happen
0: yeah. Okay. And so let's um before we leave too, let's uh, give a quick plug to Orphans Tree as well. Where where can folks find um the work that Orphans Tree is doing, and maybe get involved there? Yeah, Orphans Tree is a ministry based in
1: Colorado Springs. Website is Orphans Tree with no apostrophe, just Orphan'sTree.org. Orphan'sTree.org. Orphans dot Yeah, the image there's the tree, tree of life, and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the tree of life that that. We, we hope to offer, uh, but OrphanStreet.org. We primarily work in three regions of Russia, east of Moscow. Um, when we first started going into Russia, we found a lot of Christian organizations going into Russia, most of them in Moscow, St. Petersburg, Nizhny Novgorod. We went out more to, to the regions. We, they're smaller regions, but you know, each of those cities that we work in, Vladimir, Ivanova, Kostroma, have about 400,000 people, so they're not exactly... Small. But right. we have a ministry center in each of those three where any orphan at any time can walk in and find help. And uh, that's that's what we do. So are we up until nine months ago, we were sending six, eight teams and we're still we're getting things ready that when it opens up, we're ready to go. So if anyone has interest in in working with older orphans in, in Russia, we would love to work with you. So it's OrphanStreet.org.
0: Very good. Fantastic. Well, John, thanks so much again for being my guest here on, uh, on this episode of the podcast. Um, it's, it's been a joy to read the book. It's been a fantastic to have this conversation with you and, uh, best of luck with, with all of that and with continuing to, um, to get your ministry out into the world. Well, thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me.
1: And I'm excited about, you know, just listening to your podcast and, uh, I uh, reading up a little bit of what's of what's happening in New Wineskins. wow i'm I'm excited for you and I'm thankful <laughs> for you. And all I can say is keep doing it because we need to keep pressing into those frontiers of what what God is doing now. and amazing thing about God, God's always doing something now every day. yeah, <laughs> hundreds of years ago, a, a Christian leader said, the secret of life is find out
0: what God is doing and start doing that. And <laughs> that's what we need to do, yeah. Well, thanks again, John. And um, and hopefully maybe we can uh, follow up sometime and uh, see where things are down the road. I'd love to see you in again sometime, Joe. Yeah, Amy, I'd, lo- <laughs> I'd love to be able to go back again. I'd love to be able to. You know, it's amazing on the Internet how you can stay in touch because I'm still in pretty constant communications with the folks that were our interpreters. Yeah. Uh, on that trip that I made, you know, seven years ago, yeah. um, this kind of instant friendships. And so, yeah, I, I've definitely got a desire to to go back sometime.
1: Great.
0: Great. All right. Well, thanks again. And um, we will talk to you soon. All right, Joe. Thank you. Have a good uh-huh. Well, I really hope you've enjoyed meeting Pastor John Smith and hearing about his book and his work with Orphan's Tree and again, his deep affection for people who are on the margins. If you have ideas or suggestions for future podcast topics, I would love to hear from you. You can find us and contact us through our website at AccidentalTomatoes.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at AccidentalTomatoes, and you can always email us at AccidentalTomatoes at gmail.com. As always, if you enjoy our podcast, I would ask you to please rate us and review us on whatever app or platform you use to listen to your podcast. That's a way to help other people find us and connect with our community and to participate in the conversations that we're having together. And once again, if you'd like to support the work that we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through Patreon, where your support helps us to offset some of the expenses of producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash to learn more. So until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us for another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.